One of the more challenging aspects of being in grade school is that you're continually told things that at first seem to make no sense and seem to have no point, and you have to take on trust that only by following through them and learning well that at some point long in the future you'll actually come to use them. I found that particularly true when I was learning grammar. I thought, you know, from an early age I loved reading. I know how to read English really well. Why do I need to know that this thing is a verb and what a pronoun is and why do I have to learn what an adverb is? In fact, I never really came to value this until I fell in love with a German girl and found that probably to impress her I should learn a little bit of German. And so my German's still not great, but it's good enough to be able to tell her sweet nothings uh, and to express some of the love I have for her, even in a halting word. In all seriousness, though, that is often something that happens in life. You're confronted with something that doesn't make a lot of sense, that doesn't seem to have a lot of purpose, but if you hold on, you realize that, in fact, it's a tremendous value to you. I mention that because I think today's uh, lessons, both of them, in fact, but particularly the, the lesson I want to speak on in the gospel today, is something that doesn't seem like, at first glance, it makes a lot of sense. It's this weird, totally random question Jesus gets from this weird, totally random group of people called Sadducees, and it seems like they're talking about things that don't seem to matter, about you know who's going to be married to whom, uh, because Elizabeth Taylor's had seven different husbands, uh, and who's the husband going to be there? It's like this bizarre... A question that seems to have no relevance to our lives. And then Jesus talks about, uh, about the resurrection and about how it is that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And So what I want to speak to you about today is, is to say it's actually really worth digging into this passage a little bit to see what's going on, why this question is being asked, and why Jesus responds to it. Because this is really a question that I think encourages us uh, most specifically to think about the place that marriage has in Christian life. But I think even more generally is to, to see the place of our worldly things have in Christian life. Because ultimately, this is a passage about resurrection and living life in the light of the fact that God will raise us from the dead. And that our purpose in life is ultimately to make ourselves more and more and find ways that more and more we come to resemble Christ in his loving nature and his care for others. Because it's in doing that we come to most be who God made us to be. Now, in order to, to look more specifically about why it means these things, it's worthwhile to dig a little bit and to satisfy your curiosity about what's, what's even going on here. Now, the first thing I mentioned is, uh, that's difficult for us to understand, is what the Sadducees are. If you've uh, heard sometimes scripture passages, you'll often hear sort of three uh, or four different groups, really. Um, you'll, you'll hear about the scribes, and so scribes often are the ones who uh, wrote things down. You can remember that uh, most of human history, people couldn't read and write. Scribes would be professional uh, scribes, but in many ways they'd be like paralegals are, right? So that if you're a person who wants a document that's uh, made up to make your will or something like that, a scribe might be the person to do it. But, of course, it's a religious society. Nowadays, we're used to having a separation between church and state, whereas for them, the rabbinic court, or the court that would, would often uh, adjudicate things like divorce or inheritance law, was often adjudicated by religious officials. And so the scribes sometimes would be talking to Jesus or questioning about a, a religious matter. Another group that comes up often are the Herodians. Uh, King Herod, you may remember, is the one who, in the very beginning of Matthew, tries to kill the baby Jesus. But to make things really confusing, he named lots of his sons Herod. And so the Herodians are a different, one of the sons of that Herod, and they're the people who are basically cooperating with the Roman government. They often oppose Jesus because they're afraid that Jesus will start an armed resurrect, uh, revolution and the Romans will come and destroy them. So Jesus is facing off against them. 
he also faces off against the Pharisees. Many times we'll hear Jesus speaking with the Pharisees and disagreeing with them. The Pharisees were a group of lay people. In other words, they weren't priests that worked in the temple. But instead, they tended to be people who might be like deacons today. In other words, they have a responsibility to teach. They would teach in synagogues. There would be people who were lay people, but who learned and grew to understand the scriptures well and taught them. So although Jesus often fights with them, he also says, um, listen to what they have to say, what they teach. Just don't do what they do. And he complains about them as being hypocrites, but he actually says in a lot of ways they're right. And one of the things Jesus agrees with the Pharisees on is that there will be a resurrection. That people who put their faith in God, that God will raise them up on the last day. I get to the Sadducees because the Sadducees are the ones who are the temple elite. There was a temple in Jerusalem, and they were the ones who ran the temple. So they were ones who had specific roles, but also the thing about the Sadducees was they rejected a belief in the resurrection. So they were people who believed in the first five books of Moses, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they said in there there isn't a really strong argument for resurrection, so we don't really believe it. That's also one of the reasons why when Jesus argues with them, he brings out a part from Exodus that says, I'm the God of Abraham uh, and of uh, um, Isaac and Jacob, because they believe that those are the scriptures and authoritatively Jesus says God speaks of the living. So that's part of the reason Jesus ends that way. But it also helps us to understand, not just for trivial reasons, to understand why they're asking this question. This in the end is not really a question about marriage. It's a question that is intended to make Jesus look stupid because they tricked him and said, here's an answer that you want to give and say there's a resurrection, but here's an example we give that makes resurrection look like it's really stupid. And of course, Jesus at the end, even the scribes who are listening in say, good job, Jesus, you really stuck it to the Sadducees. And that's partly because they actually agree with Jesus on this as opposed to what the Sadducees are. So there's that going on. However, there's something else that's going on here. So they're trying to trip up Jesus, and this is a thing about resurrection. The other thing that probably seems bizarre to you right at the beginning is, like, why is this woman marrying seven brothers? Isn't that a little bit bizarre? And isn't it also kind of gross? If you think about, for example, he says um, a man dies, he's, his wife uh, is left as a widow and there's no kids, so she marries his brother, and then that brother dies and then marries his brother. That is pretty weird. Can you imagine my, my brother lives in B.C., and, and uh, let's say that he passes away, and his girlfriend phones me up and says, hey, I want to marry you. I think we'd all think that's pretty bizarre and pretty gross. This is something that's known as levirate marriage. So I got you a, a great, do you remember what I told you last week about that, that nice word that you can remember? Proleptic. Now you've learned levirate. Levirate comes from Latin, levire, which means brother-in-law. Levirate marriage is where the, the society says that when you um, die and you're left a widow with no children, that widow has the right to demand that their brother-in-law marries her. Again, that seems really strange, but as they say, it's in the book of Moses. This is actually not just Jewish society. Many ancient societies actually experienced this. And why did they do it? They did it because it secures a future for the woman who's left alone. If you think about today, one of the reasons why it's so important for them to have marriage and to have children is that today we enjoy many of the things that the ancient world didn't. If, for example, a person is, is uh, having a, a job, and they, they, they get injured on the job. They have an opportunity to sue their employer. They have an opportunity to get a disability benefit. If a person, for example, dies on the job, 
you have life insurance. And if you're a person who, for whatever reason, falls on hard luck, as hard as it is in our society to live on the welfare system, you have something that should theoretically at least give you a home and also give you enough food so you don't starve to death. That was not the case in the ancient world. The ties of kinship were what allowed you to have a future. And what that meant was is that if you died having no children, you might not have a future at all. And this is especially true for women because A, there was uh, sexism, but secondly, the hard physicality of labor meant that if you were you know, five foot two and 120 pounds trying to, to, to get a, a team of oxen working in the fields would have been a pretty hard thing. Leverett marriage was an attempt to secure a future that said, I know that this isn't a romantic arrangement you're gonna have with your brother-in-law, but it's an arrangement that ensures you have children and you also have someone to pass on an inheritance to so that what you have does not go out of the family. Maybe you've got a piece of land and your husband dies and you die with no children. It all goes to some other family. Instead, all of it will go to your family. So it's in a way of holding on to the future for a family and to making sure that your clan survives. But for the Jewish people, there's something particularly important about this arrangement as well that wasn't just securing a future. It was also securing a future for the faith. One of the most important things that Jewish people are told again and again in Scripture is teach your children well about the things God has done for you. And so the Passover, even to this day, if you have the privilege, and I highly recommend you saying yes if you're ever invited, to go to a Seder supper, what will you find? You'll find not just uh, the Passover celebrated with a great meal, that time where God passes over the Israelites to save them from their slavery in Egypt. Children all have important roles. The littlest one in the family will ask some questions and the other things are done. It's meant to teach children the faith and children are a way of transmitting the faith forward. God made great promises to Israel and said, you will be a light to the nations. And so one of the ways that Israelites felt it deeply important to get married, to settle down, to have kids, was to make sure that you provided a future because of the material needs you have, but secondly, that you provide a future for the faith and that Judaism continues. I can't remember now if it was Abraham Heschel, but it was a famous rabbi who once said, there was a time that we were afraid of you Christians because we were afraid your children would kill our children. He says, now we're afraid your children will marry our children. <laughs> and what they're afraid of is that the Jewish faith will die out because when you marry somebody outside of that clan, what do you do? You no longer teach your children in the ways of Judaism, and after a couple generations, it's gone. That's what's going on here. That's why they're asking this question, and this is why it's important to pay attention to Jesus' answer. Because Jesus, in speaking about the resurrection, what he's speaking about in saying the things that he does is that he's saying this institution that is the bedrock of Jewish society, you need to re-examine in the light of the God will raise us from the dead. Look at what Jesus says when he talks about what is involved in the resurrection. He says this, Verse 34 of chapter 20 in Luke's Gospel. Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they're like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. See what Jesus says? Jesus is saying right here, he says, that these concerns of what marriage is and procreating and having children are no longer a concern in the resurrected life. And for that reason, what does Jesus do? He says he relativizes marriage as an earthly institution that will not last forever. In other words, I believe what Jesus is saying is 
He's challenging people as they look at what marriage is, not to confuse the, the means with the end. Marriage is not an end. It is not the goal of human existence. Having children is not the goal of having human existence. The goal is instead to live the resurrected life. And that means it can be done through marriage and childbearing, or it can be outside of marriage and childbearing. Now, I think this is something that's really important for us to look at, and I think it's important for us to look at because in our culture today, in many ways, the way we live out our lives is similar to the pressures that were facing Jewish people back in the first century when Jesus was doing his ministry. For a Jewish family, the idea of not having children was a shock. The idea of not settling down and marrying was a shock. You have a duty to your nation and to yourself to pair up and to have a family. I wonder if those of you who maybe have been single for a while or those of you who consume a lot of entertainment out in the culture can notice a parallel with how our culture seems to operate. Do you know how often it is that we hear about that idea of the soulmate out there? Think about how often it is in rom-coms, right? It's going to really, uh, uh, that's romantic comedies, it's going to ramp up a lot in the next few months because the Hallmark Channel just pumps out all these Christmas stories. Yeah, well, there you go. See, you love them, nothing wrong with loving them. But you know what they always do? It's like, oh, I'm going to have such a lonely Christmas, and I wonder what's going to be under the tree. And as it turns out, it's some hunky, eligible bachelor who's under the tree, right? And finally, my life is fulfilled. It was meaningless, and now it means so much. I'm over-exaggerating a bit, but it's not so far off the truth, is it? Or think about going into the, the bookstore. There, there are fewer bookstores around nowadays, but if you go into Indigo, you know, what do you find? I mean, you find esoteric subjects and things, but you will find row and row of romance novels. You'll find row and row of self-help guides about how do you find the right person? How do you navigate dating? How do you make your marriage work? How do you keep it hot and whatever it is 20 years on? I should probably get that. My 20th anniversary is coming up pretty soon. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that, of course. I mean, couples therapy can be really helpful, self-help. I mean, there can be some really good stuff. So I'm not, not saying this is a bad thing, but overall, you know what it does? It gives you the impression that that's what life is all about, isn't it? How easy it is for us to go and look at the world and to think to ourselves, I am not fulfilled unless I settle down, I find my soulmate, and I have lots of kids. And sadly, it filters down into our culture sometimes in the way we insult one another. Think about nowadays, thankfully, people have been more aware that you know it's not appropriate to insult a person on racial grounds. It's not appropriate to insult their, their, their appearance. But you know how often it is that you see on the internet what flies around. You know that term incel we heard when, when some people unfortunately were full of anger at being single and killed other people and felt that society had this, 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 this thing that they, they held against them? It's really a term of insult. Yes, the people who did this and murder deserve, I think, to be insulted. But what it stands for is involuntary celibate. And what it usually means is loser, right? Look at this loser who can't find a girlfriend. Look at this loser who can't keep down a man. The realities of a modern age is that it makes people feel like only romantic success will give you fulfillment in life. And what does Jesus say? He says nothing could be further from the truth. Marriage is a means to shape us so that we live the resurrected life, the kind of life in which we celebrate and live out and fully live out what it is to be children of God. And Jesus says that is what the goal of marriage is. And so because you've reached there in the resurrection, you don't need marriage anymore. But the implication is it's possible. And in fact, it may be very right for you to do that without marriage in this earthly life. 
Jesus makes that most clear simply by living out his life. Jesus dies at 33 years of age with no children and no romantic attachment. Not through lack of opportunity. Jesus could was loved by many women around him, and no doubt some people were thinking, what a nice, wonderful girl who's following around Jesus. I can set you up. But Jesus doesn't. In fact, Jesus says extremely radical things that shake people up. There's a, a part in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is preaching, and a great crowd gathers, and then some of his disciples say, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside on the edge of the crowd, and they want to speak to you. And Jesus seems very rude for him to do it. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And he points to his disciples and says, these are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. For all who do the will of my Father in heaven are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Jesus, you know, doesn't stop loving his mother. When he's on the cross, we're told one of the seven words he says is gives John authority to care for his mom because his mother's getting older and wants to make sure that now he's dead, he can't be there for her. But it's also a distance. He doesn't just say, take care of my mother. He also says to John, son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. Jesus is saying here that the family connections that are so deep to you as Jewish people in which you marry and you have um, children by blood, are relativized by the fact that we are resurrected and all become one human family. And I think that comes back to us as a church to say, do we take that seriously? Because if we do take it seriously, we will start acting like the kind of family that people are seeking when they're seeking to settle down and have kids, and something that not everybody will find. You know, one of the interesting historical things that people criticized about the church in the early Roman Empire is that they said, first of all, that they were cannibals because they eat somebody's body and drink somebody's blood every time they gather on Sunday. A misunderstanding. But another misunderstanding and slander of the church was they commit incest. Because a husband and wife I know goes to the church, call themselves brother and sister. What a terrible, immoral way Christians live. It was a misunderstanding but it's a misunderstanding born of this identity the church had, which is to say we take seriously that by being one in Christ, we are people who don't simply live according to the rules of the world, but we live with our eye according to the rules of the resurrection. And I feel a sense of responsibility and familial responsibility to people I'm not physically related to. I feel it towards those that I am spiritually related to by the virtue of Christ bringing them together. One of the great things that the gospel gives to us is that it frees people from this desire or this belief that you have to find that right person in order to be fulfilled and to find intimacy because it says the church is meant to be a family where you find fulfillment and intimacy in caring for and loving one another. And there's a profound challenge for our church and for every church to say, is this actually true or is it just words? Is this a place where, just like today, I could phone up my brother and say, I just lost my job, I need help. He'd be there for me, and I know it because he is my blood relative. Is that how we see one another in the church? Or I may phone up my mom and say, I'm just, I had a really bad day. Or I may speak to my wife and say, I'm really feeling low. Do we feel that sense of connection to the people in our church, and do we make it clear to them to say, I'm here for you? Do you find places in the church where the intimacy of physical family is something that you find in the church with people you're not related to? Jesus died not having children, not having a wife, and yet Jesus said, 
that I am a brother and a, 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 to all of you. I see brothers and sisters by virtue of the fact that you follow me. And what does Jesus say? He says that I will never leave you even into the end of the age. The closeness that we have with Jesus is closer than we have even to our mother and our father. Do not think because you haven't found Mr. Perfect that therefore you're unfulfilled. Jesus never found Mrs. Perfect either, and he's the most fulfilled human that has ever lived. So there's the challenge for the church and the encouragement to those who do not marry or do not have children. But I will say it also says that when Jesus speaks about marriage, there's a challenge to those who are married and for whom marriage is a calling. It's to understand marriage in a different way than our culture tends to. Now, I have the advantage and the, the real pleasure of often being called upon to, to do wedding services. Right? So I always sit down with a couple and we talk about the vows and all of that. Many times when a couple comes to me and they start planning their wedding and I'll ask them about music. And again, I'm not being snobby here, but I'll get questions like, uh, can we play Celine Dion? Or can we do this? And, and I sort of think, well, I don't know, my love will go on. Isn't that when they hit the iceberg and the Titanic went down? And I thought, that's probably not a good thing as setting the tone for your life together, right? You're, we're just about to hit an iceberg. In all seriousness, like they celebrate that because it is romantic and it's wonderful. Romance is not a thing that I'm going to say is a bad thing. It's not. It's not central. In fact, one of the things that's really interesting to me is how much, when we talk about the, the, the passages from Scripture to read, almost always, you'll probably recognize this as I read it, almost always couples choose 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Here's a little taste of what that's like, because it sounds awesome, and it's all about love. Chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Great. It's right from Scripture. But do you think that as soon as you exchange your vows, that's what your love is going to automatically start looking like? Because it ain't. It is a hard slog. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's hard. But it does not come automatically. Why is it so significant that this is read at services of weddings? It's so significant because this is the love that Jesus has. What you're saying when you get married is not that I'm always going to feel wonderful about you and it's always going to be easy. What you're saying is, is that this institution of marriage is meant to shape me into the kind of person who does this, who endures, who loves, who isn't boastful, who isn't rude, who doesn't insist on its own way. Marriage is an instrument and Jesus has said the church is meant to be that instrument. There's other instruments. Marriage is not the only instrument to do this. But when you do feel called to marriage and you do enter to this institution, remember, it's not there primarily to fulfill your romantic longings. It's there to make you that kind of person. Because I'll tell you what the great advantage to marriage is, is not that it's always wonderful champagne and roses. The great advantage to marriage is that it forces you to serve others instead of simply making it a choice. It's most clear to me when I have kids, right? When we first had children, beautiful, wonderful. It's great to see little Peyton running around, and I just love cute little babies, right? How wonderful that is. But then what happens when they start fussing? Here, Mom. <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's not Mom saying, oh, yeah, well, thankfully, I've got some uh, alternate Mom on speed dial to pass it on to. My wife uh, uh, breastfed our children, and so that meant that when we bought the little baby home, every two hours, baby's up. And as much as I would love to breastfeed and be up every two hours, I couldn't do it. My wife has the equipment that I don't, right? Cry me a river. 
But the point of it is to say is that whether she wanted to, whether she felt like it or not, there was somebody saying, I have needs, meet them. And as a responsible father, what do you, you do? Once those, uh, the child sort of has more separation from their mothers, more of the things you can do, you want to pitch in. My toddler needs to be fed. My toddler woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning and needs to be uh, taken care of. Otherwise, he's going to go around the house banging his drum, right? Of course, as they get older, right? Like it's happened many times. I'm working on something or meeting somebody and the phone rings and it's the school saying, your daughter just barfed. Come and pick her up. You know, those are the things where it's not, huh, I, I really feel charitable and giving. I like to do something. It's, there's a need. You made an obligation to this person. You meet it. The advantage to this marriage, to this parenting, is not the benefit you get from them being wonderful. It's the benefit you get from the opportunity of serving a person and not really having much choice about it. That's a very different way of thinking about marriage than we often find in our culture, a different way of thinking about parenting. It is there to shape us and for us to help shape them to become more like what the resurrected people we are meant to be is. Now, one of the things that's really important then about that as well is to say these things are forced upon us in marriage. It means that you as single people, it's harder for you in a lot of ways, not because it's bad to be single. It's harder because you have to choose to take that on, whereas those who are married and have kids have it forced upon them. And I think that has a few implications for us as I close. One, I think as a single person, you do not realize what kind of blessing and benefit you can bring to people when you have more time uh, than people who are harassed as parents and finding it difficult. You know, one of the greatest things that you could ever do, like when Tibi and I first moved here, it was so hard to fill out all those forms saying, who do I phone in an emergency? To be a single person that says, you know what, if you're really busy and your kid barfs, I'll go pick them up for you. Or something as simple as saying, you know, yes, when a person invites you over for supper to say, when you come and eat with our kids, not to be the person that says, I need a nice, quiet, candlelit dinner, but instead to be the place where your three-year-old's flinging food around. To be the kind of person that says, you know what, I just enjoy being with you because I know you want an adult conversation that doesn't revolve around diapers. It's so nice to talk about something other than diapers when you're knee-deep in them, right? But I'd also say for those who are married, and in fact, to everybody here in the church, is to see that this gives us an opportunity to make choices when we find ourselves less busy and less demands to provide the opportunity of serving other people and to look for it, but provide the opportunity for them to serve you. Do not be shy when you have problems and challenges. Find places in this church. Create this environment and ethos in the church where when you have a struggle and you need help, you feel like you can actually reach out. Not just to me, as important as it is for me to help you, but to the brothers and sisters gathered in this room. When you're low and you need to go out for a coffee with somebody, ask somebody in the church and say, I need it. When you look around and think there's somebody who maybe is seeming a little low and a little bit of help, don't be hesitant. Don't be shy. Just say, you know what? Can I uh, invite you out to lunch after church? These may seem like small things, but what are they doing? They're showing the intimacy that a Christian family is meant to have in which we can trust one another. And that is a tremendous gift. We live in a lonely and cynical world. Let this be a place that is full of brightness and love. Not perfect, but a place that is always striving to help one another become more and more to the resurrected people that Christ eventually will make us by his power.